0: This is a Stimulus Network Podcast.
1: Hello and welcome to Eureka Nerd. I am Will Davis, a ruler with a calculator in it.
0: And I'm Leah Richards, a brand new, completely pristine mid-year diary.
1: Oh, what are these exciting things, these exciting items? Whatever could it be, it's back to school! Which is great if you enjoy buying cheap stationery. Which we do.
0: Yeah, and you know, it's relevant if you happen to still be studying anything at all, which we aren't, so we've just been at work all summer.
1: Yeah, it's not quite the idyllic summer holidays of your youth where there be water gun fights and playing in fields and all that kind of countryside stuff.
0: But the temperature has now dropped below 20 degrees, which means I can actually, like, breathe again.
1: So that's something. And we have got some back-to-school stories for you, so you can make the most of your education, which, if you're going into further education in England, you're paying a lot of money for. And if you're teaching in further education in England, you're not making a lot of money from.
0: Uh, University lecturers do make better money than school teachers, so, like, there's that. And you get to deal with people who actually want to be learning the thing that they're studying with you. Which, again, teachers in schools do not have that privilege.
1: Well, whatever kind of post-16, post-18 thing you're doing in the country that you're listening to this in, maybe you are doing a biosciences kind of degree, which is the first degree that I did. And you may find yourself in a lab, wearing a lab coat, you've got your gloves on, you've got your goggles on, you've accidentally touched the pipettes without the gloves on and got a very stern look from the lab assistant, so you've put your gloves on and had to throw away that pipette tip.
0: Did oh. that happen to you?
1: That absolutely happened to me in a lecture about cross-contamination. Mate. It was it was fresh as Week.
0: Mate. Uh, no. You're the sort of undergraduate that our friends who are doing PhDs complain about.
1: I was very much that kind of person, <laughs> and in some ways still am.
0: <laughs> Which is why you're no longer in academia.
1: It's why I'm no longer in the lab. But if you are heading to the lab anytime soon, hopefully you are in a nice lab. Some labs can be a little bit grotty, some labs can be a little bit outdated with their machinery, but hopefully at least the people in there are nice. And Arizona State University have done the hard work of finding out that positive lab environments are really good for you if you're a student and you're doing your stuff in the lab. It's nice to have a nice time.
0: It's handy for them to have done this research, because otherwise there might be professors, lecturers, and so on in your university going... Why do none of the undergrads want to help out in the lab? It's very good for them to help out in the lab. Because it is known that getting involved in research during your undergraduate degree can have benefits such as enhancing your ability to think critically, increasing your understanding of how research actually happens, and improving the odds you'll complete your degree programme. But not everyone does them.
1: Not everyone does them, and there are some people who find themselves in some quite uncomfortable lab environments. We've had a few recent cases about lecturers, about people running labs who are not just even doing the tough love kind of mentorship, but are just being dicks at the people that they are responsible for. And that's not cool either.
0: Yeah, there's been increasing amounts of talk about bad behaviour from the people running the lab of bullying, of being... Creepy as hell. All that kind of stuff.
1: Like dicks verging on being criminal dicks. Sometimes being very criminal dicks. So...
0: Don't be that guy. It's really that simple. Don't be that guy. And if you're pretty sure that you're not that guy, but you still can't keep people coming to help out in the lab, ASU have got some tips about things that put people off.
1: And they gather these tips from surveying more than 750 life sciences undergraduates doing research in 25 public institutions across America. They found that 50% of students who participated in the study had considered leaving their undergraduate research experience, and more than 50% of those students did decide to leave.
0: Yeah, if you lose a quarter of the students who are participating in your research, that's, that's a really bad rate.
1: As previously mentioned, I've been out of the lab for a while, but I think that might be a significant result.
0: Yes, my very brief experience of statistics suggests yes. Anyway, things that motivate students to continue working in research across demographics include a positive lab environment, enjoying their everyday research tasks, flexibility of schedule, positive social interactions, and feeling included, as well as Feeling like they were learning important skills and perceiving the work as important to their career goals.
1: So generally having a nice time and feeling like they are valued as people and that their contributions are worth something.
0: And useful in achieving things.
1: Mmm. Mmm. Shocker.
0: But it's nice to have the numbers.
1: Now some people were more likely to leave their research due to various factors, including underrepresented minority students who were more likely to leave because they felt they were not learning important skills, Well, white students were more likely to stay in research because they enjoyed the everyday lab tasks, which seems like an interesting kind of split there of the white students in this study enjoying the tasks and the minority people involved finding them to be not essential. Maybe there was a different delineation of workload there as to who was doing the everyday work tasks and who was doing the non-essential work tasks.
0: I would have assumed it's maybe more to do with, you know, the thing when underrepresented minorities can get access to this kind of education, it's with a view to real like career advancement. Like you have an immigrant community come in and
1: expectations are very much higher.
0: Yeah. The all their parents are doing sort of work very hard and you work very hard and you put your kids through the best possible schooling so that they can then become lawyers and doctors and so on and so forth. So it might be that actually The everyday is not enough. Yeah, the expectations at home are that much more
1: mm mm-hmm. Potentially. If this listener chimes with you, then do check out Why Aren't You a Doctor Yet? by some of our pals down in London who talk about... Uh, they start off talking about this exact thing, so they'll have more to say about that.
0: And if you are part of one of those underrepresented minorities and you take issue with it, let us know that too, because uh, I'm spitballing here. I'm wildly speculating with absolutely no experience, so...
1: Meanwhile, students with lower grade point averages were more likely to stay in research because they were unsure about future research opportunities and those with higher GPAs were more likely to leave because they didn't enjoy the everyday lab tasks. So again, there's an academic achievement and lab activity mismatch there.
0: I mean, it's possible that when recruiting students for these research tasks, they're not necessarily making it perfectly clear that most of the stuff they're going to be doing in lab is not going to be interesting at all.
1: Hmm. A lot of lab work that I did for my final year project was sat around watching a column of chemicals slowly descend until I could fraction out the one centimetre of goo that I needed to do the rest of the thing.
0: Which is one of the reasons why having this positive environment, this positive social environment in the lab is very important, because, I mean... You know, my day job, I spend most of my time staring at a database, updating the database, comparing information on the database to another database to make sure it all matches, which is not exciting work. I would say it's pretty well on a par with watching a solution precipitate or spending hours pipetting. But because my colleagues are fantastic, it's all good.
1: There's a quote here at the end which does sum up a lot of the attitudes and I wouldn't say discoveries, but a lot of the assurances from this piece of research from lead author Caitlin Cooper who says It's most surprising to us about the importance of the lab environment and the interactions among people in the lab. When we hire faculty members to run research labs we are often looking for the smartest people with the best research ideas. However this study highlights that if we want to maximise the success of undergraduates in research we need to be selecting for supportive faculty who can create positive working environments
0: And another call listeners as I would hope lots of you are people who have been through undergraduate lab experiences because you're the kind of nerds who would listen to a science communication podcast. How much would universities following this recommendation of hiring faculty to run the lab who are going to create a positive, supportive environment, how much difference would that have made to your experiences?
1: If you are a lecturer and you feel like you are always striving to be the smartest guy in the room, try being the nicest guy in the room. See if that changes things for you.
0: And then write it down and tell us about it, Mm because...
1: That's what makes it science. Now, on from the very heights of further education to the basics of education, we are going back to primary school, even beyond primary school, into like... We are going
0: all the way back to preschool. Real
1: baby steps kind of stuff. Literally baby steps. We've got some research from the Queensland University of Technology, all about the rhythm.
0: Essentially, Associate Professor Kate Williams of QUT has looked at the phenomenon known as the musician's advantage, where kids who are given formal music teaching in their early years seem to have some cognitive advantages over their peers, and has gone, I think I could do something with this, so has designed a preschool program focused on rhythm and movement activities, and started taking it out into the world.
1: A relatively small group so far, 113 children from lower socioeconomic communities across Queensland. And that's like four or five schools worth of preschool kids. That's about as many toddlers as I would want to deal with personally. I can respect the numbers there. She describes it as, Think head, shoulders, knees and toes, but do the actions backwards while you sing it forwards. It tricks your brain into gear and... Much as you mentioned with the musicians advantage being able to control your emotions cognition and behaviors is an important predictor of school readiness we want all early childhood teachers to feel confident in running these fun and important activities and the activities do look fun i don't know about important but they do look fun they've got a video at the top of the page in which you can see professor williams doing these activities the songs the motions it's a little song and dance really of note She does head, shoulders, knees and toes to a different song than the one I know. This might be a geographical split thing. Maybe it's different in England than it is to America, to Canada, to Australia. My
0: assumption was just that things get strange in Australia, but who knows? I mean, I'm interested in seeing how this works, how well the numbers bear out over larger sample sizes. As you said, 113 kids is a very small sample, and...
1: They've only just begun. They're not going to see the real results of these for like maybe 15 years until these kids are at the end of their formal education.
0: And I'm also wondering if it's potentially going to have effects later into development or is it only at this early stage that it can actually have that impact? They mention um, executive functioning and emotional and attentional regulation. Is this potentially a useful intervention for kids with developmental disorders, For Adults with developmental disorders, start your day at work on a clapping game and let's see if we feel better.
1: Is this why there's so many improv people in Bristol? Are we a testbed for this? Secretly. Um, (laughs) Associate Professor Williams, if that's true, you have to tell us. That's the law.
0: I think actually that's why most of the improv people we know seem to be so successful and talented, is because they're practicing this stuff all the time.
1: Very possible.
0: Their neuros are very plastic. (laughs) Would you like me to phrase that in a way that's less nonsense?
1: Actually, it's fine. Uh, (laughs) And Professor Williams does acknowledge that the problem is most of the children who need the musician advantage miss out because it isn't affordable to all families to access high quality music programs. So hopefully this really basic intervention in schools at an early age can in some way build up that cognitive ability and give everyone a bit more of a foot up.
0: Yeah, and at least in like the preschool settings and the, the sort of early primary school settings that I've seen happening, one of the staff delivering some sort of game that's based around music or rhythm or movement is perfectly achievable.
1: If you want to know more about this, do click through to the reading list. It's the one with wiggling in the title. But if you are heading to university, heading back to university, or just in the middle of university, school, anywhere that you are being taught that you might find sometimes that it's all a bit much. There's a lot of information coming at you very quickly. You're supposed to remember and learn all of it, and then do extra reading to figure out more stuff, and then do some more reading around that to, like, learn new things and discover stuff, and then come back to class and share that, and, oh, that's a lot of time and attention.
0: And if you're not one of those people, you might be finding that it's really hard to keep track of what the hell is going on with all of the politics All of the time. The world. I feel like in the last two weeks we've gone through enough stuff that it would have kept my history teachers busy for a month.
1: Mm. Yeah, time is happening very quickly.
0: There's a lot going on all the time. I can't keep track of what's happening with Brexit currently. Admittedly, I'm not trying very hard because it's upsetting.
1: Did you know there were elections in Russia this week?
0: Of course I didn't.
1: Did you know that large portions of Russia's forests are also on fire instead of just the Amazon?
0: I didn't, and I feel like someone should have told me.
1: There is too much information for any one person to keep a hold of in any one brain.
0: And the Technical University of Denmark have taken the idea that there is too much going on and we can't pay attention to all of it, and have run the numbers, and looks like that's how that's working.
1: This study, published in Nature Communication, Finds that our collective attention span, which, I mean, if you look around in the world, a lot of attention is focused in a few places, that's what you can call the collective attention span where everyone is looking together. It's, yeah, it's narrowing, and this effect occurs not only on social media, but across diverse domains, including books, web searches, movie popularity, and more. Social media is probably going to be the easiest to track at the moment because, well, it's really trackable. By its nature
0: except that they have i mean they have used for example twitter trending topics as something they can latch on to to demonstrate this and they've pointed out in the press release that of the global daily top 50 hashtags on twitter the scientists found peaks became increasingly steep and frequent with A 2013 top 50 hashtag remaining an average of 17.5 hours. And a 2016 top 50 trending hashtag at 11.9 hours. But Twitter do fiddle with the algorithms that make things trending every so often. There was one notable example, I believe, when they basically, everyone got really, really bored of Justin Bieber being the most talked about thing on Twitter all day, every day. So they introduced a novelty metric and um, that would have been around uh, probably 2011, so not necessarily affecting these stats, but...
1: Something similar may have. The,
0: yeah, been. the algorithms that decide this aren't necessarily consistent enough to draw a conclusion from that.
1: There is an anti-Beeber weighting to this research. Noted.
0: <laughs> <laughs> I'm trying to think of a research field where having an anti beaver weighting would be inappropriate.
1: If you are in research and have anti-Beaver weightings to any part of your daily practice, let us know at urecanerdcast at gmail.com. I don't know, maybe there's a picture on him inside the mass spec machine.
0: I'm imagining, like, the Ghostbusters sign with a.
1: <laughs> no Beavers in this lab.
0: With your Beeb in it, like, above the laptop that runs the Spotify playlist.
1: No food, no drink, turn off your mobile phones anti-Bieber zone laws enacted here.
0: If I hear even even one baby, you are right out.
1: Associate Professor Williams is in no place to have these kind of restrictions. She's surrounded by the things.
0: Oh no, hers are toddlers.
1: Okay, so they can stay <laughs> Anyway, the researchers from technical university find evidence of ever steeper gradients and shorter bursts of collective attention given to each cultural item. Now this paper uses a model for this attention economy which is an interesting way of thinking about it, but it does make sense in this modern world in which we live in, as Paul McCartney would say, that it's an attention economy. Think of how much time and money goes into trying to attract attention towards adverts and away from certain things. It's a market. That's what Facebook and Twitter run their advertising campaigns on. So this attention economy suggests that accelerating vicissitudes of popular content are driven by increasing production and consumption of content. How many YouTube hours are uploaded every second? How many books are published every day on e publishing platforms? There is more information made every day than can be consumed by any one person in their lifetime. Attracting and directing attention around that has a tremendous influence on the world and I think we need to acknowledge that too. Now there's a terrifying quote to go with this description of vicissitudes from Philip Hoovel, lecturer for applied mathematics at University College Cork, who says Picturing topics as species that feed on human attention, we designed a mathematical model with three basic ingredients. Hotness, ageing, and thirst for something new, which is the most terrifying ecosystem I could possibly imagine.
0: It's a very unsettling collection of words, and I don't know if Dr. Hovel realised this when he said them.
1: But think of something that were to predate on hotness, ageing, and the thirst for something new, that is LA, right?
0: Yeah, that's Hollywood.
1: And what else is Hollywood but the attention economy?
0: Yeah, actors die if you don't look at them.
1: <laughs>
0: George Clooney has got a meter on his back. If he hasn't been looked at enough, he starts to shrink.
1: Is that why he does the coffee adverts? That's Just why he does the coffee
0: adverts. Bye.
1: God. <laughs> oh, you tug on one thread and the whole thing comes apart. <laughs> We're figuring it out live, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else at home. We have the underpinnings of L.A. in our hands. Thank you, Philip Hovel. You don't know the good you've done.
0: (laughs) The same goes for other people with similar, let's say, foibles. So just stop looking at the Donald.
1: This is a note to myself. Please cut in the song from the episode of The Simpsons' Treehouse of Horror, where the giant mascots come to life. To stop those monsters, one, two, three Here's a fresh new way that's trouble-free It's got Paul Anker's guarantee Guarantee void in Tennessee Just don't look.
0: look, just
1: don't look Just don't look, just don't look Just don't look, just don't look So another quote at the end from one of the authors Acceleration increases, for example, the pressure on journalists' ability to keep up with ever-changing news landscapes. We hope that more research in this direction will inform the way we design new communication systems such that information quality does not suffer, even when new topics appear at increasing rates.
0: They are at pains to point out that this is talking about the attention span of societies of communities as opposed to the attention span of individual people because there's a lot said about individuals attention spans being shortened so on and so forth i don't think there's that much in the way of research to back it up but they have mentioned that they might move on to looking into that
1: i think with how many different things there are tugging on your brain all of the time having a short attention span is just one way of managing the huge amount of information there is in your day to day
0: I mean, frankly, given that I have ADHD, I have quite a good attention span.
1: Yeah, better than other people I know who do not.
0: So, I mean, sometimes that's just hyper-focus, and that is also part of the thing.
1: Now, if you are, as we once were, approaching the end of your studies, maybe this is coming up on your PhD 5 season maybe this is the start of your final year of university, maybe you're not going into further education and you're just leaving school and heading out into the world now to pick up a job and get on with your life, there's a lot that happens between being in some kind of regulated environment, like a school, and becoming independent. That's kind of the switch between being a kid and being an adult.
0: It's a bit of a meme among millennials, and I guess now centennials as well, like Gen Z are starting to become adults, and it's a bit of a thing with our cohorts talking about adulting. The process of being an adult, like, it seemed to just happen to our parents and our grandparents. We're having to really think about it and talk about it and try and support each other through it. Because it's traumatic, you guys. But at what point in your life you start to consider yourself an adult, at what point in your life you feel like you are doing the adulting, can be variable. And a new study led by the University of Arizona have looked into what might be a pretty good predictor of when you'll hit that point.
1: It's your cash. So adulting, like you say, it's hard to pinpoint into anyone's life because people are leading very different lives. There are people who are mature and having to deal with a lot at the age of 12, 13, 14. There are some people in their late 20s, early 30s who are... I mean, they're my friends and I love them, but they are not dealing with the world very well.
0: (laughs) Yeah, I mean, you ask anyone of our age group, do you know someone between the ages of 25 and 30 who can't operate a washing machine? They will say, yes, I do, and I'm very worried for them.
1: Trying to pin down when an individual becomes an adult is hard. The way that our generation is experiencing adulthood is very different to that of our parents' generation because the world is a very different place. We're living in homes we don't own, with furniture that we can't assemble and refurbish and repaint to our own needs, so many people don't know how to use power tools or do carpentry and stuff. That's one of those kind of measures of adulting, of can you build a bookshelf?
0: Can you bleed the radiator yourself? Do you know what to do when the warning lights start coming on in your car? Last time I had that happen, I just googled it, and it was fine.
1: I mean, I don't think I'm supposed to bleed our radiators because we live in this apartment where there's all kinds of maintenance contracts attached to it. And if I start messing with stuff, that might be in violation of one of them. It to better just like calling the guy to come do it.
0: God, I hope we're allowed to bleed our own radiators. It's a measure of independence that I don't want to let go of.
1: <laughs> exactly. And what the University of Arizona were looking at was financial markers among college students. They were tracking their comings and goings financially to see if there was any way that they could maybe make sense of who was spending what and how and if that influenced or in some way predicted their adulthood.
0: And indeed they think that they've got a fairly good correlation between being able to manage your finances as a student and when you achieve an adult identity as they term it.
1: The adult identity, measured on a scale of 1 to 5 in a survey with a series of statements, such as, I feel that I have matured fully. And lead study author, Jean-Min Li, says, We ask participants to reflect on whether they think they've already reached adulthood and whether others around them see them as adults. The respondents here being students who started their fourth year of college in 2010, and then catching up with that same cohort in 2016. Jamin Lee continues, The emerging adults we focused on are at a special developmental phase, and in this period, they have the need for intimacy. It's a stage where they become independent from family, but more dependent on a partner. So researchers need to regard intimate relationships' effects on development in this stage of emerging adulthood.
0: Study participants who reported that their romantic partners had good financial habits scored higher on measures of adult identity than people with matching scores to their own, who didn't have romantic partners with good financial habits.
1: They also found that those who practice more responsible financial behaviours reported having fewer symptoms of depression, and higher relationship satisfaction as well, which both seem to promote the formation of an adult identity. And, I mean, being sad and broke is really accounted for a lot of my adulthood, so...
0: Yeah, I mean, I feel like, obviously this is data that's been, like, very averaged out across a large number of people. I managed my money well at university. I was at no point completely dead broke. I am now 28 and a matter of weeks away from being married. I don't feel like a grown-up. And I have had crushing depression this entire time! But hey, I always have been a bit weird.
1: And I'm not as sad and broke as I used to be, so I guess that's something?
0: You are more of a grown-up than I am.
1: I think I've just got a beard.
0: I'm cleverer than you are, but I'm not as good at stuff.
1: (laughs) I will take it.
0: (laughs) Um, Oh no, I'm cleverer than you are, but not quite as useful.
1: We're backtracking. (laughs) Once you are done with your adulthood, however, once you have fully matured and you are in adulthood, eventually that adulthood must come to an end.
0: Thank God for that.
1: You get those fun years of probably being a kooky old retired person rolling around the fields of France in a caravan or something.
0: Or just sat in your rocking chair on the veranda of the retirement home going, Oh, young man.
1: We both have very different ideas of what we're going to do in our old age.
0: I insist on being allowed to be the most cantankerous old lady.
1: I don't think I get a say in stopping you at that.
0: (laughs) That's part of the deal of being the most cantankerous old lady. (laughs) Is that she is towing her husband behind her in a bath chair as she causes absolute chaos around the retirement home.
1: Look out for that in Eureka Nerd episode 1 billion and 2, I guess?
0: Uh podcasts will be obsolete by then. Just be able to beam our thoughts directly into other people's brains.
1: Terrifying.
0: <laughs> Why do you care? You'll be in a robot god body.
1: Uh, yeah. As long as I can turn the Bluetooth off on that and stop people getting in. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> but anyway...
0: okay <laughs> getting so sidetracked.
1: <laughs> but if you are not on the veranda of your retirement home, and if you're not already uploaded your consciousness into the Dataverse, your body, maybe even your brain, may come to its natural end.
0: And if, at that point, you happen to be a star researcher, as in a researcher who is a star rather than someone who is researching stars, Mm -hmm. because uh, this is about life sciences rather than physics.
1: Then you will be mourned, you'll be a loss to the research community, people will celebrate the contributions that you have made to your field.
0: And then they will trample all over them. Because it's time for progress, y'all.
1: Mm-hmm. There is the old phrase that science advances one funeral at a time. And this is something that is in fact referenced directly in this press release from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, titled New Science Blooms After Star Researchers Die. The paper, co-authored by MIT economist Pierre Azule is in fact titled Does Science Advance One Funeral at a Time? The co authors of Christian Fons Rosen and Joshua Graf Sivin. This paper, published in the American Economic Review, is described by Azule as the conclusions of this paper are not that stars are bad, it's just that once safely ensconced at the top of their fields, maybe they tend to overstay their welcome.
0: And what the study has discovered is that in the wake of the death of a star scientist, their subfield sees a subsequent 8.6% increase, on average, of articles by researchers who have not previously collaborated with those star scientists, and papers published by newcomers to the field are much more likely to be influential and highly cited than any other pieces of research. Because why bother trying to save the feelings of this extremely important guy once he's dead?
1: Now is the perfect time to publish your rebuttal.
0: It paves the way for some new ideas.
1: Another quote from Azoulay from further down in the press release. The fact that if you're successful, you get to set the intellectual agenda of your field, that is part of the incentive system of science, and people do extraordinary positive things in the hope of getting to that position. It's just that once they get there over time, maybe they tend to discount foreign ideas too quickly and for too long. Think of how physics has exploded quite literally at times since the early 19th century with more decisions being made all of the time, and as soon as people are like, pretty sure we've got Newtonian physics unlocked, there's whole new fields of physics that unfold, and with every generation of scientists, there's the idea of, oh hey, we thought Einstein had it right, turns out maybe not so. We thought Hawking had it right, turns out maybe not so, and if that hasn't happened yet, it's only going to be a matter of time.
0: Unless Hawking turns out to have been entirely right, and the robots are coming to get us.
1: And do you want to know what's a really good example of re-examining old ideas and coming up with better explanations for tomorrow's science? This piece of research, not in Eureka Alert, but published through Science News, has been sent to us by friend of the show, Lucy. Thank you very much for this, I told you it would be in a show, and now it is the headline, which caught her eye and she sent our way. Thank you again. Ground beetle genitals have the genetic ability to get strange, but they don't.
0: It's interesting that they say they're not strange, given the story which we covered before our break about being able to tell the difference between certain insect species by which bits of their genitals fluoresce.
1: The ground beetles in this particular press release come from Japan's flightless caribus beetles, which, when mating, the males insert a chitin-covered appendage that, once inside a female, pops out a plump sperm delivery tube. Delightful phrasing as well as a side projection, ooh, uh, called a copulatory piece. Now just try and like draw out the diagram for that in your head. It's like a sliding car puzzle, but with genetic material exchanged.
0: It might be useful to know that the copulatory piece doesn't deliver sperm, but steadies alignment by fitting into a special pocket inside the female reproductive tract.
1: And you might think, huh, those sure are some weird genitals that these bugs have.
0: But it's apparently pretty typical for a caribus beetle.
1: It turns out they actually have the genetic flexibility within species to get way weirder than that. But there are pressures against how weird they can get that have kind of kept everything in mostly the same shape.
0: So what they've looked at is the specific sections of DNA that seem to have an impact on the size of the various parts of the beetle genitals. Particularly the piece And the pocket, which really throws me right back to doing Shakespeare stuff in A-level drama. (laughs) And having all the dick jokes explained to us. Possibly my enjoyment as a school kid of Shakespeare is fuelled by, or influences, the fact that I think dick jokes are the funniest kind.
1: He definitely wasn't talking about swords all the times that he said prick.
0: No. No, he really wasn't. Indeed, several times when he specifically says the word "sword," he's not actually talking about a sword. There are a couple of really notable lines in taming of the shrew that are just raunchy I'm not no, not even raunchy, like it's literally just literally just saying the names of sex acts <laughs> <laughs> it's, just, lit- it's literally just describing sex acts. It's under a thin veil of pretending that we're making puns, but it's it's just describing sex acts. Anyway, Shakespearean dick jokes aside, let's get back to the beetle junk. It had been assumed that the sizes of the various parts of the beetle genitals were being controlled by the same genes. This research contradicts that. And Teiji Sota of Kyoto University and colleagues say in Science Advances, The beetles seem to have a fair amount of genetic freedom in changing one sex's doodad dimension without also resizing the other sexist counterpart.
1: And Catapus Doodad Dimension is going to be the name of my next prog fusion band.
0: I'm really interested to know whether Doodad Dimensions was literally what the researchers said, or if this is some sort of like weird translation quirk. Because, I mean, if we can go around calling it a doodad, I'm going to start calling it a doodad.
1: And with the flexibility that you might expect with the Doodad Dimension, Some extremes are mentioned in this press release, that they might not always be compatible in some almost upsetting ways. And out-of-sync sizes can cause, quote, ruptures, snap-offs, and generally low numbers of offspring, possibly due to the snap-offs and ruptures.
0: Yeah, I mean, it's not going to help you to carry gestation of your eggs through if your junk is damaged. Now, they have tested this, I think, by intentionally hybridising some of these beetles, so they get some weird mismatching genitals. God, the more we talk about this, the worse it sounds.
1: They do observe that it's not that there's any genetic mismatch that leads to infertility or any other ill effect, it's just that parents with the wrong size genitals don't have a lot of offspring, possibly due to the aforementioned ruptures.
0: Without the parts that fit together nicely, the... Delivery of genetic material is less efficient. There are fewer beetle babies to go around.
1: Survival of the fittest.
0: And the fittingest. (laughs) Hey! hey. Which, you know, is an obvious and immediate evolutionary pressure.
1: So that last piece probably doesn't have so much to do with education and university and back to school stuff as the others do directly. If you're having any concerns about your doodad dimensions, then take that up with your school counsellor. Health professionals will be able to help with that definitely more than we will.
0: And also, if there's anything this shows us, it's that actually average sizes are better.
1: Compatibility is very important Mm -hmm. in many regards. Mm
0: -hmm. Vitally important.
1: So, uh, yeah, just have a good time in the lab. Don't be overstimulated by information. And wiggle.
0: And use condoms. That's just general good advice for freshers.
1: Yeah, yeah. If you would like to tell us all about the weird things that have happened to you in Freshers Week already, you can send that in an email to eurekanerdcast at gmail.com.
0: That's eurekanerdcast at
1: gmail.com. You can also find us on Twitter at eureka nerdcast. Or if you've really enjoyed this super helpful information and you want to say thanks with money, drop it to us at kofi.com forward slash eureka nerd.
0: Donations through there help us to offset costs of producing all this wonderful content and also it just makes us happy and you should want to make us happy
1: a few more stories just to tide you over whilst you're getting your schedule sorted and figuring out when you can have a lion from lancaster university families continue to enjoy tv together but potentially ruin it for each other this could actually be useful if you're moving into a shared household and you're sharing a tv or netflix or other streaming service account
0: Looking at digital streaming services and television packages, they have discovered that families who cooperate on researching and deciding what TV packages to buy are likely to enjoy their TV viewing more together, but there might still be someone who spoils it for you.
1: Value can be destroyed where the actions of one family member are detrimental to others. For instance, a person might disrupt family viewing by talking loudly, deleting recorded shows that someone else wanted to watch, or making disparaging comments about another party's tastes in TV shows. Dad. This statement can apply to all dads.
0: But also some of it does apply directly to our dads. We love you dads, but seriously.
1: And finally, from Ohio State University, Marijuana use may not make parents more chill.
0: And indeed, it's possible that if you feel the need to take lots of things to be more chill with your kids, you might be, like, really unchill to start with.
1: But until next time, that's bye-bye from me.
0: And goodbye from me. This podcast is brought to you by The Stimulus Network.